I'm Chris Epting, and this is Roadside Baseball, the podcast. I spoke at an event a number of months ago, a dinner event, and afterwards I was approached by a gentleman who I would have guessed maybe was in his early 70s, but very youthful, you know, very, very sharp and with it. And he comes over to me after I was signing some books and um, he whispers to me, I have a baseball story that I've never really told anybody before, at least not you know, on any great public level. He had shared it with a couple of friends. He said, I really want to, you know, if you have some time, I'd really like to share this story with you. So I said, you know, of course, who doesn't want to hear a good baseball story? I, I, he wouldn't tell me too much about it. He did let me know, though, that as a, a teenager back in the 1950s, he was the scoreboard operator at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. You know, one of the kids who would have been out there hanging the the numbers and things and you know you, you still see it at Fenway Park obviously but back in the 50s this was a, a regular job for young people and he had it so I found that kind of intriguing and I love reading about and learning about Griffith Stadium so um, with that we exchanged emails for you know the last couple of months and finally we're able to get together and and I could hear the story the gentleman's name is Mike Wickline and we met recently, and he told me this story, which I think is really intriguing, and it's something that I hope you'll enjoy. A little background before we, we go to the conversation. As I said, he worked at Griffith Stadium. Griffith Stadium is where the Washington Senators played, of course. A little bit of history, some, some events that took place there, a lot of things, but, but some of them were notable events at, uh, at Griffith. October 10th, 1924, the Senators won their only World Series title, defeating the Giants in Game 7 when Earl McNeely's 12th inning bad hop grounder drove in the winning run. April 13th, 1926, Walter Johnson, making his 14th and last opening day start, outdueled Philadelphia's Ed Rommel in a 15-inning, one-nothing game in which both pitchers, both pitchers went the distance. Think of that today. Both starting pitchers going 15 innings. Um... July 7th, 1937, Cardinals ace pitcher Dizzy Dean suffered a toe fracture when struck by a line drive in the All-Star game. The Yankees' Lou Gehrig doubled, homered, and drove in four runs in the AL's 8-3 victory. And probably the most famous moment at Griffith was April 17, 1953. Batting right-handed, New York's Mickey Mantle crushed a Chuck Stobbs pitch and sent it caroming off the side of the football scoreboard in left field. The ball, which landed in the backyard across the street traveled an estimated 565 feet that is one of the most famous home runs in baseball history and it plays a part in today's story so obviously griffith stadium is is a big part of my book roadside baseball if you go there today there's a hospital which is part of uh, howard university today but they've got some great signs marking where things were the batter's box home plate and things like that some great old photos so it's a it's a really good roadside baseball landmark but um my guest today, Mike, is going to take us inside not just Griffith Stadium, but inside the scoreboard out in, in right field and tell us, uh, I think, a, a very intriguing story. So with that, without further ado, here's my conversation with the former uh, scoreboard kid from Griffith Stadium, Mike Wickline. So Mike, first of all, describe how you got involved with the Washington Senators, because it's a pretty interesting story. 
just what brought you into Griffith, Griffith Stadium and, and how you found yourself there. Give us a little bit of the backstory about who you knew and, and what sure. the path was to the ballpark and just growing up in the D.C. area and being a baseball fan back in the 1950s. Okay, my family was uh, uh, all around the D.C. area and eventually uh, we moved to the suburbs in Maryland uh, across the line from Washington, D.C. My dad and my Uncle Lester and my Uncle Jack grew up with the Robertson uh, twins. There's three of them, uh, Billy, Jimmy, and Sherry Robertson. They went to Roosevelt High School along with my dad, Blaine, my Uncle Lester, my Uncle Jack. They became fast friends. The Robertson boys, they were the adopted sons of uh, Calvin Griffith. That's of the Griffith Stadium fame and the Washington Center to baseball team. Well, uh, of course, being a kid, uh, we loved baseball, football. Were you a big and, Senators fan as a kid? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we didn't have any choice, uh, even though we spent uh, all that time growing up in Maryland after moving out of D.C. We wouldn't dream of uh, uh, supporting the enemy, the Baltimore Orioles. We were Washington <laughs> Senator fans, you know, by birthright, by family, <laughs> what have you. So in any event, uh, uh, we'd get uh, free passes to the games because of our connection with uh, Billy Sherry and Jimmy uh, uh, Robertson. And we went so often that uh, I think I was 14 when they actually asked me if I'd like to work there. And uh, now that had to be crazy. All of a sudden, 14 years old, you're going to get a job at the ballpark. That was beyond crazy. That was like uh, dying and going to heaven when you're 14 and all your heroes are there. And you get invited to work there. Oh, my God. It was, uh, it was heaven. So, of course, I uh, jumped at the chance and actually got offered the job. Spended my first year in a concession stand, schlepping up uh, Cokes and hot dogs and whatever to uh, folks that would come up and uh, to the various uh, stands and kiosks uh, outside, of the, uh, outside of the actual playing part of it. By the way, give us an idea. What is Griffith Stadium like? I mean, you're going there every day as a 14-year-old. How is it as a ballpark? For those of us, obviously, that weren't old enough to go there, what was it like as a, as a park? Yeah, Griffith Stadium was uh, located on 7th Street and Florida Avenues in an old part of D.C. And every day we'd arrive, we'd have to pass by um, Howard University and the Wonder Bread Factory. And even if you were napping in your uh, hitchhike ride or in the uh, streetcar, uh, that Wonder Bread, wonderful smell would wake you up and you were alive again. And then you'd look at old Griffith Stadium sitting there, and it was old. I think the place, I don't recall the exact seating, but I think it only held like 28 or 31,000 people. It, it was small, it was compact, but it was a very cool stadium. And it, it was old. It was wood and wood and more wood. Uh, I, re I distinctly remember the center field bleachers were just a flat... I think they might have been a two by twelve, and you sat on them. With, there was no backing. <laughs> there, there was, there was. Of course, you had to have concrete to build a stadium, and you only went uh, two levels up uh, at Griffith, um, and you know you felt like you had a pretty good seat regardless of where you were. It, it was, uh, in today's terms, intimate ballpark. Uh, had a big wall and uh, and right field, and Mickey Vernon would hit him out of there from time to time. And, of course, everybody hit him out of uh, left field, which was short. 
and Mickey Mantle, uh, I saw him hit the Longines clock one time <laughs> and then drive, uh, at the time, I think it was the longest home run yeah. in history out of uh, Griffith, and uh, I, I, I witnessed that. You, you were at that game? I was at that game, yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So, at, But Griffith was uh, uh, just a fire trap waiting to happen, but somehow it remained until its day, even after they... Uh, Griffiths took him out of town to Minnesota. The stadium thrived, and uh, I think Howard University teams played there. And yeah. A bunch of other college teams uh, played there as well. But I was going. I joined the service. I was in Vietnam and whatever. But going back, so you're 14. First year you spent, uh, you, you spend the, the concessions. And then, then what happens? You get a little promotion. Well, I don't know if it was a promotion, but they moved me to the um, wholesale department. And we prepped up all the foods and the drinks for the vendors. And the vendors walked through the stadium and actually sold uh, to the seated customers hot dogs, Cracker Jacks, uh, everything. An interesting side note is all the people that went out through the stadium, they were all black. All of uh, the people that worked in the uh, concession stands and worked in the wholesale department, they were white. you got to remember this was in the 50s, the late 50s and early 60s. And that's just the way it was. It was segregated. I mean, it was segregated, and, and but there was never any issues. Um, so after uh, after track. <laughs> after your second season there, you get yet another. I, I, I would call this a promotion. Describe yeah. describe what your next responsibility at Griffith is. I, I, we were. I, I was such a, a loyal uh, employee, which or fan call it what you will, uh, they offered me, because I showed up every day, it doesn't make any difference whether it was a school night or not, or school, I, I was there all the time, I loved it, um, we, it working the earlier things, uh, we'd get off by uh, seventh inning, so we could watch two full innings of the game, and then um, I, I was offered a job in the uh, uh, right center field scoreboard. Literally, you would be the kid hanging the numbers. I would be the kid hanging the numbers and working ball strikes and outs on the electronic part. Those were the only electronic parts of uh, the scoreboard in right center field. So describe what it was like in there during the game. And were you, were you working alone or did you have a partner? On, on uh, weekdays, I worked alone. And on weekends, we had a second person come in. And typically, that would either be my Uncle George or a buddy of mine named Mackie. And between the three of us, we had the whole 81 season game covered for baseball. They never needed anybody else. We were, we were the guys. I was the main guy, but uh, Uncle George and Mackie helped out as well. And so how would it work? You would actually watch the game and then hang balls and strikes based on, or indicate on the electric part, just by watching what the umpire signaled? Three, three stories up, we had our little setup upstairs there. And we could see, we had a great view of the entire stadium. All right, so and give people would, a picture. So the scoreboard yeah, setup, it was three levels. Three levels. It might have been uh, seven feet in width, and it carried on for about, oh, 60 feet across. Mm -hmm. And we would march uh, back and forth amongst the upper level and the second level to hang our numbers for the various games going on throughout the league, not on an on a inning by inning basis, but as their games progress, we would update them just with one number. So this is a lot of work. When you're in there, you're constantly moving, constantly updating. If you're by yourself, yeah, but you know, you have to remember back in those days, we didn't get 
inning by inning updates of all the games. Right. You know, once every three or four, maybe five innings, we'd find out what the uh, the Cubs and the uh, somebody else was doing. You know, so when we had time, we'd go change it. But the thing we did have to keep updated with all the time, no matter whether the visitors are batting or the senators are batting, is we had one contraption that uh, we would press a button for for balls, strikes, and outs. And so for the ball strikes and outs, you would pay attention to those, obviously, and make sure that the game you were keeping track of was up to speed and as accurate as it could be. Right, right. We had, uh, you know, whoever was in the uh, attendance that day, they, they were watching our scoreboard. They wanted to keep up with ball strikes and outs, and that was our job. Uh, we'd watch the umpire and get the best read we could. We were right uh, most of the time. We'd get corrected if we were wrong, and we'd try to fix it real quick. But it wasn't a big deal, you know. If we happened to put the little dial on four for uh, strikes, you know, we'd get a chuckle from the fans. You know, they they knew that some kids were out there messing up. Uh, but uh, back and, and back in those days, you know, we're talking late fifties here, early sixties. One great big thing, maybe uh, eight inches by fourteen inches. And it had three dials on it, ball strikes and outs. So we uh, we were always one step ahead of uh, each ball, each strike, and each out. So as soon as that pitch hit, boom, we'd press that button if it was a strike or press it if it was a ball, and boom, there it comes up real quick. One of the great parts I would think of being out there is the bullpen was right next to the scoreboard. So you and your friends out there working the scoreboard had access to the Washington Senators pitchers pretty much all the time, right? What was it like to have the guys right there? Yeah, well, it, it was my Uncle George and my buddy Mackey, uh, primarily my friends uh, helping me out. But it was wonderful because uh, all, all the pitchers and the catchers and the coaches that came out to the bullpen had to pass us by. Uh, you know, and they'd usually give us a knock-knock on the wall, and you know, their greeting, saying hi. And they were the last ones to come out to the bullpen prior to the game. What you play, know. Who are we talking about? Remember the pictures? I, I remember a few of the names, and uh, if I had a little list, I'd, I, I could say, oh, yeah, I remember this one, that one. I mean, there was Tex Clevenger, uh, uh, Dick Hyde, um, uh, the sidearm pitcher. Jeez, uh, just said his name a minute ago. I can't remember it now. Um uh, oh, uh, there, there were the two Cubans. Uh, Griffith was one of the first ones to bring up Cubans, uh, Camilo Pasquale and Pedro Ramos. Uh, they didn't spend much time in the – well, they spent plenty of time in the bullpen when they weren't pitching, but uh, they were interesting characters. Uh, and, and they would come up and visit us from time to time in the scoreboard because we had the third-level uh, view. You know, you could had a great view of uh, the stadium so from the pitchers, up there. So the they were watching at ground level in the bullpen. They would come over to the scoreboard because they could get a better perspective of the field up on the third level uh, there. Absolutely. And, and you, know, I, I, you know, spending nine innings in a bullpen has got to be a little boring. I think they wanted to, you know, just walk around and, you know, get a little freedom. And they come up, and there was no pressure with us. We were just doing our thing. And... We were thrilled when they'd come up, uh, and uh, we'd, we'd like to have them up, and you know, uh, obviously made them as welcome as we could. And part of that welcome is uh, my stepfather used to own a little bar on 14th Street called the Pyramid Bar and Lounge, and uh, I'd go there frequently uh, before and after games, and uh, he'd, he'd fill me up with these little snacks and whatnot. 
So uh, initially, I'd give them to the players, but then I got to be an entrepreneur, and I started selling them to the players for nickels and dimes and whatever. They loved it. Later on, I snuck in beers, and some of them would drink a beer. Just watching the game, if they're if they're not pitching that day, just hang back. They would never beer and drink. Can you imagine that today? Yeah. That came oh out my god! Yeah. Oh no. Well, they would never uh, advertise that, and we wouldn't tell anyone. But they'd never take their beer back to the bullpen. They'd finish it off there, and that was the end of that. They didn't have a lot of choice. It was Schlitz or a Budweiser. There was no such thing as light beer in those days. So you're working there, and you spend a season in the scoreboard, Mike, and, and it's great. And you you get a obviously you're part of the game, and you're you're. How you get into the game every day? You taking streetcars or hitchhiking or however. You oh get. no! Well, we were we were thumbing it. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd hitchhike, uh, and typically we could get a ride to the district line. I was in Maryland, in Wheaton, Maryland at the time, but I'd typically get a ride to the district line, and then wherever amongst uh, when we got to the district line, you know, you'd hop on a streetcar for ten cents, and you know, you get a great ride down to the stadium. And, for, you know, we, I would just fall asleep. It didn't make any difference if it was a day game or a night game. I'd just fall asleep. But by the time we got close to the stadium, you could smell that Wonder Bread smell. Right and, oh, yeah, wake you right up, and you knew you were in heaven. Yeah. So something happens that um, it's the reason you originally reached out to me, because you witnessed something that you've never really spoken about publicly before. Um, why don't you paint the picture of that day, what, what your day was like on this particular uh, at this particular moment and, and the event that happened, what you saw. Why don't you take us through okay. what was happening that day? Okay, well, it, it was definitely a weekend. I don't recall whether it was a Saturday or Sunday. And typically Saturdays were single games and Sundays were double headers. But whatever. Uh, we had two of us in the scoreboard that day, and I'm almost certain uh, it was Uncle George who's somewhat mentally challenged, and he doesn't remember everything, but he remembers everything about sports. And um, uh, Uncle George and I were working the scoreboard, and it was his turn to be on ball strikes and outs. So, so you would rotate that responsibility. Absolutely, yeah, we would rotate. Uh, that's correct, yeah, yeah. He'd get bored with it, I'd take over. I'd get bored with it, he'd take over. There wasn't any set rules like you're going to do a half hour on and, uh, you know, whatever. But whoever was not on ball strikes and outs had the opportunity uh, to put up the little scores on the other teams, that didn't take much time. So we had plenty of time to wander. And uh, up from up there, there was an alley directly behind us that went the whole block before you got to Florida Avenue. And an alley was, inside the park or outside? Oh, no, o- outside of the ballpark. But uh, from out the back of our scoreboard to the alley was one step. You walked, you know, some of the shabby lumber, the, the wood divider, was nothing. You could walk, you could get over top of it and get into the weeds and you could be right there in the alley. There was somewhat protection so people couldn't climb into the stadium, but you could you could see everything that went through the alley and the, and the, at the time was kind of low-grade housing back there. Right. So anyway, I'm working my way through there, uh, enjoying the views. You could see, you know, a good part of Washington, D.C., you know, you could see the Empire State Building, or not, not the Empire State, you could see the Washington Monument. I and, say, hell of <laughs> yeah, a that, view. yeah, that would be a hell of a view. Uh, you, you could see a lot of D.C. from that perspective on the third floor. And then you come down to the second floor, and you, you got a little more intimate with the neighborhood and the alley there. And we got to know some of the kids. They'd run errands for us and, and buy, buy us a beer, buy us cigarettes, buy us whatever. But on this day, you see something. You find, you find kind of a nook down there you've never, you never even knew existed, right? I, I, I did. I, for some reason, I, I was curious. I had a little too much time on my hands. 
and I decided to go down to the ground level, which of course is the same level that the uh, bullpen's on. So the bullpen was separated uh, from us by several feet, but when you get back to that back section there, it was sort of an open area, I mean, protected from the alley. No one could see anything from the alley, but from the scoreboard area, still inside the park, I got down to ground level, and then I noticed something out of the corner of my eye, and uh, then when I focused in, I could see it was a Washington senator uniform. And there, were, who it was? and there was a player inside there. His name was Chuck Stobbs. And he's by himself. Chuck is by himself. He's peering through, I call it a, a spyglass, a long, uh, I mean, something you see on a pirate ship. It, it, he didn't have binoculars. He didn't have something small. It was a long periscope affair. He had it set up on a tripod. And I'm watching him for a little while, being just as quiet as I possibly can be. He doesn't know you're there yet. He's clueless. He, 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 he's too focused on what he's doing. And he, then I notice he's got something in his hand, his right hand. And he, 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 it's not a clicker. You can't hear any sound. But I could see him uh, uh, operating this, this thing from time to time. And I, I probably was there from somewhere between five and ten minutes. Okay. And he was active with this clicker, this thing, for lack of a better word, this clicker. He was active. And I'm clueless at the time, but it didn't take me too long. It you're, Chuck, you're about, you're about yeah. 15 years old at this time. Yes, that is correct. Yep, yep. And then and I made a ruffling sound, rustling sound in, in the weeds back there. And Chuck looked over, and boom, I'm busted. And he, and he looked at me, and he knew me. He said, Mikey. What are you doing down here? I said, oh, I'm just wandering around, Mr. Chuck. And he said, well, you better wander back up there where you belong. Get yourself back up in the scoreboard, Mike. I said, all right, Mr. Chuck, all right. So I go dashing back up to the scoreboard and uh, just sit there and let it sink in for a while, not figuring, not knowing what the hell's going on. What are you thinking at that time? What do you think you may have seen? Like, do you remember? At first, my mind is spinning. I don't know what the hell was going on. But then once I settled down a little bit, it didn't take me too long to figure it out. Wait a minute. You know, this guy's got his periscope pointing directly at the catcher. Okay? The pitcher's not in his way. He's got the right angle. If you'll see where the scoreboard is, it's not direct run Mm -hmm. to the catcher. He's got an angle on it enough where he can see the catcher's signals, okay? And then he boop, boop, does his signals. I don't know where that's going to. I don't know whether that's going to the bullpen, I mean to the, um, the, dugout. the d- dugout. I don't know where. Or maybe it's going to the third base coach. Maybe it's going to the first base coach. But eventually the batter is getting a signal of what's coming next. And that was the year that... Uh, um, What's his name? Uh, took over third base from Mickey Yost. Uh, oh, come on, Harmon Killebrew. Killebrew. Bobby Allison hit more home runs that year. Um, Mickey Vernon was retired by that time, but um, he hit. A, he might have been retired. I, I don't recall so the, team, the exact lineup. The team's doing better. They were cellar dwellers during before, before I worked at the stadium. All the time I worked in the stadium until that year and all of a sudden they yanked themselves out from cellar dwellers which is seventh and eighth place back in those days they were eight american league teams eight national league teams that was it they stayed in seventh and eighth place consistently 
that year they came up and they ended up in either third or fourth I don't recall following year I think they ended up in second place then they blew out of town and uh, Griffith took them to Minnesota and they became the Minnesota Twins two or three years later they won the freaking World Series (laughs) like what happens after you see him down there possibly stealing signals well um, it, it it I came to the conclusion of what was happening. Uh, I, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say. I didn't even say anything. I didn't even say anything at the time to Uncle George. Um, after the game is over that day, I was treated with more respect. Not that it, we were ever treated badly. We were treated quite nicely. We were one of the guys. Uh, everyone was. You know, we were a team. Uh, but I got some extra attention that day. From who? From uh, Billy Robertson, who was our main guy. He, he was our favorite guy of the two twins, Billy and Jimmy Robertson. But he, he, he made a point. And then Gilly Lansdale, uh, who lived in my neighborhood, and uh, I always bummed a ride uh, uh, back home with Gilly. And he was a big, tall, uh, tough old guy. And he was extra nice to me that, uh, that evening, too, on a ride home. There was a bunch of us in Gilly's car. He was the director of... Uh, sales for all the paraphernalia. Was it your perception that they knew that you had witnessed Oh, there, there was no doubt about that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they always treated us nicely and uh, but, with but, respect. But, but, but what I, were they doing oh, that I, day? What, I, what was I your could, tip off oh, that they were? Well, we, I didn't spend a lot of time with uh, Billy Robertson, but Billy never came to greet me after the game. <laughs> you know, that was you know he, he had more, way more important things to do than look after my little young ass. You know, fifteen years old. And what you know, did he say that, to you? I, I don't recall, but it, you know, it was like, Mike, you know, like how you doing? You know, he never came up to me after a game and asked me how the hell I was doing. You know, not that he wouldn't if he ran across me, but you know, uh, what uh, you know. Uh, and Gilly, he was the director of concessions. He had all the paraphernalia. He sold hats and right. baseballs and whatever. And he said, "You want something, Mike? You know, how about how about a ball? You know, or something? I don't recall right. exactly. But he offered me something. I said, "Oh, thanks, th- uh, thanks, Mr. Gilly, but I'm I'm okay. Thank you very much." But you know, over the course of that season, I did accept a few things that normally would not have been offered to me, because they didn't offer Uncle George and they didn't offer Mackie that those goodies. But I got offered, and I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I didn't say anything to anybody. When you when you think back on those days today, uh, how does it seem? I mean, it makes you wonder, like, were, were other teams? Was this? You know, it's sort of like the days when the, when spitballs were going on, exactly. when guys could get away with yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you write it off as just sort of a sign of the times, or how does it make you feel about the team at that time? At, at, initially, my feeling was, oh my God, I can't believe it. Uh, my guys, the Washington Senators, they're really not that good. They're cheating, and. Now they're lifting themselves out of the cellar. I'm thinking this, this, this is not good. And then, and then my perception changed, or my thoughts on that changed. Is that wait a minute? I, you know, I don't think my guys are any smarter than the other 15 teams. The other teams must be cheating too, and this is just my guys getting even. So I'm okay with it. Go ahead and cheat. <laughs> Whatever. I'm gonna leave it alone. <laughs> you, you work about another season or so, then the team, the team leaves. Yeah. When I when I. Uh, turned uh, uh, 17 uh, I got a car I was one of the first kids in the neighborhood to get a car and then uh, when I turned uh, 18 and the senators left town and went to Minnesota I said you know I'm not going to go work for these fake senators this is like you know who are these people right my people Billy Jimmy Sherry Robertson you know all the 
all, all the they main. All they all they all went to Minnesota, yeah, because they took the real baseball team. What did you do for, what did you do for team. baseball after the centers left town? Nothing. I, I ended up working in a freaking printing press, an awful job that summer. I kind of regret that I didn't go to work for the fake senators, the expansion senators. Well, a little Bob different. Short's expansion senators that you know came from where did they come from? Canada. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think they were the um, Montreal Expos, maybe. I don't know. Wait a minute. I don't remember. You're a fan today. Yeah. You're a baseball fan today. I, I am. I'm a, I, I am. I, I, I moved to a place called Ocean City, Maryland, which is primary a, a, a Baltimore area resort town on the Atlantic Ocean, and almost everyone in, in Ocean City they were Baltimore fans, and it took me years to get over the Senators and become an Oriole fan, and then I became a diehard Oriole fan when they played at the old stadium and uh, even Camden Yards. But I dropped them like a hot potato when the Montreal Expos came to Washington and became the new Washington Nationals, you know. I mean, they're my, now the, the Orioles are now my favorite American League team. And thank God the new uh, Senators, the Nationals, they're playing real baseball with no designated hitters. And, uh, you know, I, I'm you a got baseball. a team again. Exactly. A I, I got again. a team again. They're a good team. And uh, they're playing real baseball. You should Love go it. see if they need a scoreboard operator <laughs> out there. Come full circle. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd probably work for free. Yeah. And so there you have it. Did did Mike Wickline observe firsthand sign stealing by the Washington Senators um, at the hands of uh, of Chuck Stobbs? It, it, it sure seems like it. Uh, Chuck Stobbs, as, as you may know, may not know too, he is the one who gave up the pitch to Mickey Mantle that, that you know, arguably one of the most famous home runs in baseball history where Mantle hits it an estimated 565 feet. Interestingly, Stobbs may have thrown another historic pitch. There's no official record, but he's considered by many baseball historians to have thrown the wildest pitch in Major League history during the first game of a doubleheader in Detroit on May 20th. The pitch landed in the 17th row. Uh, so some some real distinctive uh, records there by, by Chuck. And, you know, looking at what Mike, Mike talks about in this story, you know, did the Senators get better in in the ensuing years after? I mean, 1957, they were a miserable 55 and 99, finishing eighth. 1958, a little better, 61 and 93, still finishing in the in the cellar. In 59, when things may start kicking in from sign stealing, they go 63 and 91, still no great measurable uh, success. But in 1960, they win 10 more games. They're at 73 and 81, and they finish in fifth place versus eighth. So things do seem to be taking a slight turn there for the better. Of course, by 1961, the team has left for Minnesota, and uh, and that ends uh, our friend Mike's career there as a uh, as a scorekeeper in Washington. You know, in terms of sign stealing. Just to give you some background, in 1951, the Wall Street Journal reported that the New York Giants used a telescope from center field to read signs from opposing catchers. Information was sent to Giants players from a player in the bullpen. This is the same year that Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard around the world. 
Sports Illustrated reported in 2017, quote, as technology advanced, so have the methods of cheating. In 1997, the New York Mets were accused of using a small camera near home plate in Shea Stadium to peek at catchers. They denied the allegations and were never punished by the league. In 2011, the Philadelphia Phillies were accused of stealing signs when other teams complained that they used binoculars to watch the opposing team's catchers. So, of course, if you're any kind of baseball fan, you know that sign stealing um, has been around since the, since the beginning and uh, may still continue today. Uh, there was an interesting article in The Week back in 2010. It said, when shortstop Chris Spire joined the San Francisco Giants as a 20-year-old in 1971, living legend Willie Mays pulled him aside for a lecture. Quote, listen, we get everybody's signs, and we, re- we relay those signs, he informed the rookie. So you better start thinking about it and doing it, unquote. Legend has it that Mays was alerted to the pitch for every one of the four home runs he hit against the Braves on April 30th, 1961, thanks to Giants coach Wes Westrom, who had broken the Braves' code and was signaling the slugger with a towel. So, I mean, this, like I said, it's, it's always been a part of baseball, but I just found it so intriguing to have this firsthand account of this kid who was a huge baseball fan who who luck you know just really shined down on him and and gave him this this job with the senators and the fact that he stumbled into that area that secret area saw the sign stealing taking place and then afterwards was kind of rewarded to keep his mouth shut presumably i just thought was a very intriguing peek back into baseball in the late 1950s so i hope you enjoyed that and again if uh, if you're ever in the washington dc area I strongly recommend a trip to the former site at Griffith Stadium where the uh, hospital is now at Howard University and you can find the home plate marker there and some wonderful signs and and, and stories that are posted and and maybe think about what it was like uh, when this kid, Mike Wickline, wandered into that forbidden zone beneath the scoreboard at Griffith Stadium and witnessed what certainly seems to have been sign stealing back in the late 1950s. With that, I want to thank you for listening. I'm Chris Epting and this has been Roadside Baseball, the podcast.